All right, if you will not only find your way back to your seats, but find your way into the Bible to Psalm 73. Spent some time there last week. We'll spend some more time there this week. We are, if you're just joining us in the beginning part of 2014 here, we we began a series that we're going to be doing in the first part of the year until the Lord releases us. Started at the last Sunday in December. Called it Fixing Your Happiness by Fixing Your Gaze. And we spent the first, this will be the third part of this. So the first three parts were much more about happiness, about fixing your happiness, about approaching that whole subject and thinking about it accurately and getting some wise insights on something that that truly means a lot to us, but perhaps we've not really paid attention to how to define it and how to pursue it and, and how to kind of deal with our own lives and soul while we're on the journey of doing that and how to be reasonable about it. So that's where we've started this series. We're going to move after this week into the fixing your gaze part. But I think all of us can relate. I mean, here we are with the second weekend of January. You know, the uh, sounds of Happy New Year are fading, right? The, the distraction that the holiday season provides for us. It's, it's sort of, a, and this is an, an interesting emotional element to the holidays. Because for some of us, you know, we're living life and we're just not sorting this thing out and we're not on top of our game and there's not a great deal of joy happening, just kind of surviving maybe, dodging difficulty as best we can. And then the holidays come and, and sort of just distract us from that whole realm of life. And you know, I had an interesting conversation with a family member who'd lost a close relative and, and, and just realizing how, how am I going to feel when I get on the other side of the holidays here? Because all that noise is going to settle and go away and, and it's just going to be me staring at my life. And How am I going to do? Right? I mean, you guys know that. Uh, some of us are, are recovering from the saints loss yesterday. Uh, and, and, and here's the hard thing. I mean, maybe you haven't written this at the bottom of your uh, planner, but, you know, you, you just got back a whole lot of mental activity. You just own a whole other set of emotions and activity. Because you've sort of let the saint season be a little bit of a distraction from life, right? As long as they're doing good, I, I got some. I got the game to look forward to this weekend. And now you're kind of like, now what? The Pelicans? Well, <laughs> but which I'm faithful. I'm a faithful Pelican fan, but, I, you know. I don't have high hopes for them right now. They seem to be struggling. But all this distraction's happening, and here's what we've said about happiness. And it's just true. Let's just all humbly own this. We are in the business of happiness. There's a sign over my head. It's the Keith Corporation is in business starting 2014, and I'm trying to strategize for my business to see how to optimize my bottom line at the end of the year that I want life improvement. I want my well-being to improve between January and next December. I want to be happy. I want to be happier in my life. That's true of every one of us. And so we're, we're going after happiness, but we need to be wisely informed about how we do that. Here's an interesting perspective from Jim Holt. He writes for the New York Times. He says, with happiness supposedly in the reach of everyone, especially in the United States, 
it is pursued with a frenzy that perversely gives rise to its opposite. Unease, discontent, and even guilt. The topic of happiness turns us all into philosophers. Every, everyone wants to be happy. But no one can say with much precision or assurance what happiness is. Happiness, in its full extent, is the utmost pleasure we are capable of, John Locke declared. Remember I told you last week, some of the Declaration of Independence, some of our governing documents were aided by Mr. Locke. His view of a life that could have the ability to pursue pleasure unlocked, well, I mean to use that word, for him it presented the opportunity to believe that we can create a world where pleasure can thrive in us. And we should, and governments should exist for that very same reason. But Mr. Holt goes on and says, John Locke declared this, raising the dangerous possibility that there were as many forms of happiness as there were types of desires. Right, so somewhere along the line, somebody installs the idea in us that if you want to be happy, tap into the pleasure impulses that are in you and figure out how to pave highways for you to experience those pleasures. And at some point, certain pleasures will beat out other pleasures, Pleasures that are easier will beat out pleasures that are harder. Candy beats out, you know, roast beef for, you know, kids. Uh, there are pleasures that we're going to run after. And here's the great danger. Here's just the cultural reality. Here, be careful about how you engage your conversation about government and its role. Because our government forms some ideas that government exists to make people happy. And before they thought it through, in a much simpler time frame, today, one person stands up and says, well, okay, well, if that's why you exist, then make laws that make this possible for me. And somebody else says, make laws that make this possible for me. And, and this, this writer for New York Times is right. John Locke installed an idea that's going to be very, very, very hard to manage. And so you're living in a world that, that one person says, being married heterosexually is what makes me happy. Create laws and tax benefits and, and legal structures that protect marriage and create a setting for me to be married to another person and, and that thrives. You should help that happen. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, that, that doesn't do pleasure for me. Homosexual relationships do pleasure for me. So government, you exist to make me happy. Create laws that allow for me to be married in a same-sex relationship Another person comes along and says, you know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm not really going to be happy having a baby at this point in my life. It's just, that's just not going to be a means of happiness for me. It's going to be work. It's going to distract me from a career. I'm not ready for a relationship like that. I'm not ready for those responsibilities. And so that would not make me happy. And since the government exists to help me in my pursuit of happiness, the government needs to make laws that make it possible for me to abort my child. And government makes laws that does that. See, you understand, if you're not careful, this realm of happiness is a dictating realm. And it's not as easy as you and I want to make it out to be. That, you know, our, our government, well, government's on a hook here. Because government exists to try and make people happy. But happiness is all over the place today. 
and it's people chasing pleasures that exist in all kinds of categories. So that's not going to be as easy to do as one might think it is. He goes on and says, is happiness really our ultimate goal? Our truth, beauty, goodness, and freedom only valuable insofar as they lead to it? Is it possible to have everything you want and still not be happy? Is that a good question? Is it philosophically possible in your existence to have everything you want, your pleasures, your cravings, your experience in life have created a list? Is it possible for you to have all those things and then find yourself just gazing into your soul and saying, I'm still not happy? Would that mean there must be something else you want, but you don't know what it is? Might it be that you will run hard after your list that you think will make you happy only to discover that it hasn't made me happy? And is that giving away that there's something else in you that you really want? Even more than want, something that you really need in your life that these pleasures cannot satisfy. Now, I find, and this is a helpful question that he asked here, Is it possible to have everything you want and still not be happy? I find people have over-idealized expectations today, perhaps more so now than in generations before. You know, I I told you about my my dad grew grew up in the Depression. You know, he's 95 years old, and so he's got stories to tell about just having nothing and just surviving, being able to eat uh, flour and water pancakes was, uh, was, that was life. You know, there was, there was no, what restaurant are we going to next? It was just surviving for them. And now there's so few stories like that in our lives. We've, we, we live in such a uh, blessed and abundant society that we don't know much about that. And so our expectations for life are really, 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 really high. And the higher your expectations are, the more you're sitting in this room this morning very, very, very disappointed about something. See, if your expectations are really low, it's hard to disappoint you. But when they're high, and then get high in all kinds of categories, and primarily I judge them by whether they're fulfilling my happiness. So I expect my marriage to make me feel happy. I expect this relationship and that job to make me feel happy. So there's big expectations all right, so just in our pursuit of happiness, can we, can we be wise? Here's some questions for us. Are you prepared for life's pursuits to fall short of fixing you or making you feel complete? Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to get to a place five years from now, you've pursued some things, you've placed some value on them, and you get to the point where you've arrived at some of these places and you still feel like, I'm not, I'm not fixed. There's still something in me that's just not not happy, lacks a sense of great joy and contentment. Are you prepared for good things in life to leave you feeling like there must be something more? It's not just a bad thing. This is not like you shouldn't have done all those drugs and had a heroin problem. The good things in your life that leave you feeling sort of empty. Are we guilty of having misplaced expectations? Right? Did, you, did you think new friends would fix you? You ever been in that place in your life? And especially if you're younger, you're a teenager, you're, you're a college student, and you know, th- life just doesn't feel like it's real rewarding, real sense of robust reward and health. 
and you know, so, okay, I, I need to fix something so it can fix me. So let me fix my friends. Maybe I just need a different set of friends. Maybe I just need to get around somebody who's cooler, got a bigger reputation in the school or whatever. So you just begin to weigh how you're doing in that, in that category, right? Or maybe you are a person who thought that that new job would fix you. You, you, know, you got a new job, just kind of tried that for a season, uh, just didn't do it. Maybe what I, I need a new job. That's what I need. I need to start a new career. I need to change and do something because I'm looking for something that'll make me feel fixed. Like it's complete. I'm good. Did you, did you think marriage would fix you? I know it got you in a fix, but did you think it would fix you? <laughs> right? I mean, listen, I remember I didn't get married to my late twenties. So I remember those years of, of that, that single feeling of detachment, of aloneness, of sort of feeling incomplete. And, there, and there's a healthy realm of, in viewing that, but there's a sense that you're going to fix me. I'm going to get married and you're going to fix me. And, and what happens? Everybody who's married, what happens? You, you get into that for a little while and you realize, I don't feel fixed. Uh, now, you're grateful for your marriage in a bunch of ways, but it didn't quite make you turn the corner, right? Did you think having children would fix you? Are you hoping that when they move out, that will fix you? <laughs> Did you think that getting divorced and getting remarried would fix you? Now, everybody who's in these categories, you immediately know there's a little bit of a moment when you're entertaining this thought where that is what you're thinking. You think, if I just do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the corner and there's going to be this sense of well-being that, that wells up inside of me. And, and you're sitting in this room right now and you're, every one of us can shake our heads and say, I turned the corner and it didn't fix me. It was in my life and I was glad for many of those things. But did they become a source of, oh, I'm good? No, they didn't. Right? Here's an interesting relational insight. Matt Chandler in his book, The Explicit Gospel, says... The hard-won lesson I've learned in marriage, something I'm very grateful for knowing now, is that there are some things in my wife's heart and some struggles she faces in life that I cannot fix. It doesn't matter how romantic I am. It doesn't matter how loving I am. It doesn't matter how many flowers I send or if I write poetry or if I clean the kitchen or if I take the kids and let her have some girl time. I am powerless to fix Lauren, and she's powerless to fix me. Listen, listen, for everybody in this room who's got a fix-it personality, right, I've, got, I've got a fix-it personality. I want to listen to your problem for a few minutes. Uh, hopefully, I've learned to listen to for a few more minutes than I used to. But I want to listen to your problem for a few minutes. I want to take it apart, and I want to give it back to you fixed. I want to fix the way you're thinking about that. I want to bring something of God into the picture that may be missing. I, I just want to fix it. And to realize that there are some things that you just can't fix in other people. If you're a fixer, that's a frustrating thing in your life. You're very, I am. I'm very frustrated by that. Doing all those things to minister to her are right and good, but there are things in my girl that I can't fix. Things that are between her and the Lord. Right? Are, you, are you prepared for that? Right? Now, we, it's not as though the Bible misinforms us. It is American culture that misinforms us. 
that you can arrive at such a state of prosperity. You see it. It's portrayed for you. It's in the commercials. It's around you. It's, it's being uh, proclaimed on Facebook. It is a life that looks like everything's fixed for that person. It, it's, it's a misrepresentation because you know everything is not fixed for that person. But we start thinking that it is. So for us, are, are you prepared for life, life to feel unfixable? Are you prepared to live in locations and to live in relationships that no matter how hard, how much you figure out the perfect thing to do in that thing, it will not turn that into a spring of happiness for you. It will not do it. Are you prepared for that? The Bible, this is not shocking news to the Bible. But I don't know, somehow we think... In, in America, we, we, can, we can make everything bigger. We can make everything better. We can, we, can, we can push life to ultimate. You know, people who live in third world countries, they're not thinking that way. They've just learned that this is life. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not starving to death. I'm grateful to have a shelter over my head. That, none of us are happy with shelter and food. It needs to be certain ultimate foods, and our shelter needs to be up at a certain level, right? We have expectations about life. There are some things about your life. I'm just trying to help, help us be wise here in 2014 as you sit out on your mission to be happy that you can't fix. You, you, there are things about your children you can't fix. I want to. I want to try and create a life pathway for my kids that, that just has no potholes and issues and struggles for them and sense of detachment and loneliness and depression that everybody that people go, I, I, I want to fix that for them. And I can't. There are things in your friendships that you can't fix. There are things in relating to people in the church you can't fix. They're going to be there and they're going to be needing repair. Well, Psalm 73 tells the story of a godly man who has mismanaged his pursuit of happiness. He knew God, he misplaced God, and he fixed his gaze on the wrong things. Let's read, starting in verse 1. I know we read this last week, but we'll read part of it again. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, so we're about to to visit this man's inner workings, right? The label happy is not over his door. So he's not trying to tell you, I was a happy man. He's telling you, given who God is and God is good, you know, for how... I, sh- I should have been, but I wasn't. Not a happy man. I was envious. What was going on in my life, I didn't like, and I wanted something else in its place. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Set their mouths against the heavens and they 
their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? (laughs) Is there knowledge in the most high? Does God know what's going on for goodness sake? Look at these people. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is not a happy man. This is not a man, a happy man. And we catch him in a moment of comparison crisis. And I, I don't know if this is just unavoidable. I'm not sure which the chicken or the egg, which one comes first here. Do you start to compare and then you become unhappy or are you unhappy and therefore you begin to compare? I'm not sure which one happened exactly which way, but I mentioned this last week and this is just important. Can you just make a note of this? It's an aspect in your life. You're not paying attention to it very well because when was the last time you read a Bible verse that screamed at you about comparing? Like that's a big giant no-no. You don't do that, Christian. Do not compare your life to others. Can somebody find me a reference point for that? I mean, it's in here. It just doesn't come out and say it that way. I mean, we know fornication, uh, drunkenness, stealing. We got the big ones. This is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It'll eat away at your happiness in an amazing way. It'll, It'll bring God into question. That's dangerous ground. This comparison thing. <clears throat> and that's what he's doing. Comparison. But this is a bumper sticker on all of our cars. Comparison is a happiness killer. Right, for the most part, you don't bother to compare when you're really feeling fulfilled and content and happy, do you? I'm good. I'm good. You're not lifting your eyes up and shopping to see. Well, how's everybody else doing? Huh? Anybody else going through what I'm going through? Anybody else just having one thing break after another? Everything's going well. Not paying attention to that kind of stuff. It's when the challenge comes. It's when it's not quite fulfilling what you'd hope. Then you lift your eyes up and you begin to compare. Right? Interesting, interesting little article here. John Bloom wrote called Beware of Mirrors. He says, mirrors are very dangerous for proud people. When we look into a mirror... We do not see enchanting beauty, nor do we see the glory of God imaging forth in the indescribably complex, ingenious, phenomenal, spectacular miracle that is a human being. What we see mainly are our defects. Stop for a moment. Remember the last time you stared into a mirror. Why do you stare into mirrors? Right. I mean, I realize that there can be some pride stuff. Every once in a while, you, you know, pull a Fonzarelli, you know, I don't know. And you look into the mirror and you go, hey, you know, boy, I'm, I'm good looking. Every once in a while. For the most part, you stare into the mirror to find what needs to be fixed. Right? Isn't that what you do it? You want to see if your hair needs to be fixed. You want to see if your tie needs to be fixed. You're looking in a mirror to see what needs to be fixed. And, and, and God forbid that you go to the mall and stare into one of those concave mirrors. <clears throat> that just, just evaporates all hope. You know, you look at your face 
and you know, makeup can't help. It's like, those aren't pores. Those are caves in Tora Bora, you know, in my face here. I think Osama bin Laden could be hiding in my face when I look in those mirrors. So it's, it's, mirrors are dangerous. But listen to this. The captivating power mirrors wield over us is not what we see, but what we want to see. What we see is deficiency. What we desperately want to see is sufficiency. And worse yet, we see mirrors are all around us. Fallen proud hearts turn just about everything into a mirror. Whether we're gazing at magazines or malls or mutual funds or someone else's immaculate lawn, impressive children, beautiful home, successful business or growing church, we see ourselves. We see ourselves wanting. Right? Do, do you do this? Can you just shop with me for a second in this little list here? Right? You lift up your eyes and you set your focus and your gaze upon these things in the world around you. And they become in your hand a mirror that starts to tell you about you. And you feature all of your defects, all the ways in which you fall short. That thing becomes a measuring stick for your own life, right? Whether it's impressive lawn down the street or impressive children, right? You you get around somebody who's telling their story about their son who's just graduated from Harvard after they finished at West Point and they were on the president's council and blah, 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 blah. And you're just sitting there thinking, I am the most, the biggest loser parent I know. (laughs) Just happy if my kids make it through LSU, you know, (laughs) right? That became a mirror for you, didn't it? Right. You get around somebody, maybe you're a business owner here. <clears throat> you get around somebody who's just, you know, just telling their story. They're just telling you about how they started off. It's just me and one other employee. And, and then it grew to two and then 20 and then 50. And, and now we've gone into several markets and we're, and we're outside of New Orleans and we're in several states and blah, 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 blah. And then they tell you, you know, we just started this five years ago. And you're thinking, good night. I've been in business for 20 years, 20 years. It's me and two guys and I can't even get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. <clears throat> so you, you can't celebrate what's going on in that person's life, can you? Because it's a mirror. They just became a mirror in your life and you stare at it and you go, okay, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why has my company got that story? What am I doing that's not doing that? If you're a pastor, pastors chronically, bump into this comparison thing. You're just tempted to want to find out what's, what kind of numbers are you running? You know? What kind of budget do you have? You, you, you want to find stuff because you can't measure spirituality on a scale. Right? So you can have big numbers and big budgets and just have slacker church members. And I'm not sure what that says about you. But you know, you're just tempted so you hear about something that's going on and this church had started, you know, and it was just, it's just a church plant recently. And now it's, it's enormous, you know, and you've been pastoring for 10, 20 years and you're looking at what you've built. And then that church then becomes this mirror and you go, is it my preaching? Uh, is it, is the way I relate to people? Uh, it, it, what, what is it? What are we doing wrong? Right? This is what we do. We turn life into mirrors. And then those mirrors introduce us to a whole new realm of unhappiness. 
he goes on and says, as, as we look into these mirrors, <clears throat> seductive messages are whispered into our heart. Fix that and you will be happy. Or better yourself and others' admiration, acceptance, respect, success, or attraction will save you. Right? Suddenly, it will do something. It's going to bring you to that place where the inner turmoil gets settled. And all of a sudden, you're at peace and there's happiness in your life. He goes on and says, these are the promises of every false gospel. Which is why mirrors are such effective messengers of false gospels. Right? This is where we live. This is where we look. We lift our eyes up and we look into the landscape of other people. And their lives become mirrors for ours. And we measure our own. And we become envious. And if you're not careful, your envy will turn, if you're a proud person, envy then transitions to embitteredness. That's what happened to the psalmist. Does anybody think the psalmist here is really, he's totally just unhappy because he lifted his eyes up and some people that are less righteous are experiencing a blessed life. And he is beside himself because of that. That's not where he goes. This is not righteous anger. It's not a man who's looking at this and saying, Lord, what about the testimony of your name on the earth? This is not his argument. His argument is a comparison. He's not happy. He looks at their lives. He wants what they have. He wants their style of life, their sense of ease and reward that they're having. And then that envy turns into embitteredness, right? I mean, he's not doing well. He says, I was like an animal. That was totally unreasonable. Don't even try and talk to me. I'm so mad. Why does envy turn to embitteredness? Because not only do I want what you have, I think I have a right to it. How come you get to have? Why do we say stuff like that? Because there's some pride in me that says, I deserve for my life to be a certain way. How come that person just seems to get one favorable situation after another? Why does that bother you? Because I'm like this guy in Psalm 73. I'm stricken every day. I face difficulties. My life breaks and it hurts. Well, well, so does his, by the way. But he doesn't put that on Facebook. So the psalmist doesn't see that. It just looks like it's all working, well-oiled machine. Things are going perfect for him. Be, be careful right, in our pursuit of happiness. Here's, here's our bottom line difficulty belief as we lift up our eyes and we start to believe, if I, if I fix that, I will be happy. And I, and I arrive at a that somehow, right? I mean, right now in this room, if you just had to do a little homework, write something down in the space of your outline, what would that be for you? If you could just fix that, you know that you'd probably turn the corner and become much happier in the way you feel about your life. What, what would that be? Now, maybe it's a list. Maybe it's two or three things. But th- I'm seriously, think for a second. What would that be? That would really help you turn the corner, experience a greater sense of well-being, make you say, ah, my life is good. I like my life. Think about your answer. Share it with your group this week. But what what is it now that that fixes this man's gaze? The psalmist in Psalm 73, he's, he's about to turn a corner here. And 
his attitude is about to be affected by him lifting his gaze and placing it where it needs to be. That's what's going to happen. He's going to fix his happiness by fixing his gaze. Look in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned. Then I began to see accurately. I went into the place where the presence of God affected me. And then I began to have eyes that could see life in such a way that I begin to understand what really matters. Right? His envy gets, gets the legs cut out from underneath it. Because the person who seems to be leading the fat, sleek life, he just presses the fast forward button on it a little bit and arrives at this location in our life. And it's like they go over a cliff here. And they end their life terribly in judgment before God. And all of a sudden he looks back on their life and says, is that really what I want? I want a life full of temporary pleasures that end in judgment. No, I, I, I don't want that. See, his, his view of what he was envying suddenly begins to change. Because of what he sees in God, of who God is in his own life. Now, let me just put a footnote here. Um, Notice, his attitude has changed, but his circumstances have not changed. The unrighteous around him are still leading a life that looks a whole lot better than his. And he is still stricken every morning. Listen, do do you recognize some of us are trying to fix those things in order to fix our happiness? Right? There's a little bit of celebration. How many many of y'all do that? You know, we used to get on the phone. Now I guess we text. But we have some kind of conversation with somebody and we just learn how to maneuver somebody else's crash and burn moment into our conversation. Did did you hear about so-and-so? Yeah. Lost everything. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? There's something in us that kind of goes, yes, yes. They're, they're on the skids too. See, Mr. Successful is not always successful, is he? Mr. Always got the right Christian answer. Hmm, doesn't sound like he's got the right answer now. It's hard, isn't it, buddy? Yeah, see, your problem was you never faced life before. Now, that's, that's the unspoken stuff. And hey, did you hear about so-and-so? There's a little bit of celebration going on inside of us because we feel happier about people's circumstances that have been really, really good for them, but not good for us doing this. Oh, you got a downgrade. I I feel a little better about me now. That doesn't happen for him. He's not getting fixed by somebody else having a wreck. And he's not getting fixed by all of a sudden he stops getting stricken every day. He doesn't have any more suffering. He doesn't have any more difficulty, right? Listen, how many of us are entering 2014 trying to find a recipe to downgrade everybody else and fix our level of comfort, then you're going to fix my happiness. That's how we enter 2013. That's how we enter 2012. It's our mode of operating. It is not his mode of operating. Nothing in those categories change. What changes is his view of God. And suddenly his happiness is different. 
Look over. Keep reading here. Verse, where did I stop? Skip down to verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Right, this is a perspective changing moment for this man. The man who was embittered and envious and couldn't be reasoned with suddenly some things that are true about his life are suddenly mattering to him. In the midst of all of his horrible, I'm not happy, he gets around God, he gets a view of God, and it's like he begins to see things spiritually. Nevertheless, God of the universe, eternal being full of glory, I am continually with you. You, you hold my hand and you walk through life with me, caring for me, protecting me, providing for me, bringing me your care and your love and your nearness, which my soul cries out for. And, and not only am I benefiting now, but afterwards, you're going to receive me into glory. Where, where, where did this become an impressive idea? by staring at glory long enough to actually see that glory is pretty impressive. Glory is worth having. It's worth, it's worth giving up everything to have. Oh, is it really? Well, stare at it a little bit. Well, I, you know, I don't do that well. Well, that's the whole reason why we're having this series. Because the things that fix this man are strangers to us. The things that he saw fixed him. There's no fixing without seeing. We need to see these things. You know, what's interesting is this man suddenly realizes as he, he just compared his life to the wicked who he labeled them prosperous, right? They are prosperous. Why are they prosperous? They own stuff. It's easy for them. They get vacation days. They get to eat all kinds of food. Uh, they have positions of influence. That's why their eyes are puffed out and they're so arrogant, they are prosperous. That's an interesting definition for prosperity, isn't it? You know, what's really interesting is that's the same definition that the prosperity gospel has. When is it that you'll know you're prosperous? When you can build a big enough house, when you have enough money, when you can afford luxuries, when you can, when you can live above the level of what most people live at, then you'll know you're prosperous. Uh, that's when, not when this man knew he was prosperous. He knew he was prosperous when he remembered he had God always with him. I have God as my God. It's my father whom I relate to. I have God who's taken me by the hand. I have God's counsel through my life as to what to pursue and how to think about it. How to organize, live life, prioritize. I have God to do that for me. And then I have laid up for me treasures in heaven and glory. This man was prosperous. 
regardless of what his bank account said, regardless of whether or not his job title was a certain thing or not. Listen, are, are you prosperous? If you've been around prosperity teaching, your brain just now answered the question wrong. Because you're still trying to figure out how to get prosperous in the categories that the wicked prosper. And God gives you himself a wealth beyond measuring. Unfortunately, of very little value to us. Did he just get God? Did he have God before he was envious and embittered? Yes. It's the greatest tragedy in this psalm. What he came to realize, he always had, right? And he kinda, it kind of comes back to him. I'm continually with you, Lord. What has happened to me? How did I get so screwed up in this? I have always had you. Is there a greater treasure available for me than you? But he became aware that's not what his heart was after. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Lord, there's nothing I want, nothing that will fix me, nothing more important to my happiness than you. You want to find out why you're miserable? Find out what it is that you desire in the place of God. That's why he's miserable. This is what fixes him. He realizes I have desires for things. I have desires for position. I have desires for ease. And so I measure my life on whether I have them or not. And if I don't experience them at the level that that guy over there, that mirror for me is experiencing them, I'm not happy. And only when he gets in the presence of God and sees God accurately, he begins to realize, Lord, those things have replaced you. They had become the source of my happiness and you had been lost to me. What did he see in your outline there? He saw the infinite and surpassing value of one person that makes everything else expendable and not a necessity for my happiness. Who am I? Whom have I, God? Not what have I. Whom have I in heaven but you? Suppose in your bank account in heaven, all you got is God. That's it. What if I, what if I broke that news to you today? In all of eternity, when you get to heaven, all you're going to have is God. That's it. You going to be okay with that? You're going to want a refund. All the day long, I have kept my life pure. I've lived a certain way. I've said no to these pleasures and yes to this. And I've sacrificed and I've done this all my life. And I'm going to get to heaven. And what I'm going to have? God. Wow. Really? Some of us are okay with that thought. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go through some machine you know, some Star Trek type experience and I'm going to get beamed into heaven and I'm going to glorified body. So somehow that'll probably be okay with me then. Is that what you think? All right, what if I told you that for the rest of your life here on this earth, the only prosperity that I'm promising you is God. You get to have God the rest of your life. You might not have a cool job. 
You might never get married. You may not have children. Nobody may ever use your name in a conversation. They may never applaud you. They may not think that you're significant. But you have God. Right now, some of us are realizing that doesn't launch me. That's a bad place to be, church. It is a worldly place to be, church. It is a bunch of us who have become convinced about the same definition of prosperity that the world believes in. That doesn't see God as essential. That doesn't find in him their all in all. That doesn't live for his pleasure. That doesn't find his nearness more rewarding than anything else. terrible place to be. But this psalmist says, it's the nearness of God that is my good. My sense of good, my sense of well-being is tied up in the nearness of God. The reality, the tasting and seeing of who he is, the gazing upon God in such a way that I am affected by who he is. An awareness that goes off in my head that says, God, as I've gazed at you, and then I think, you are continually with me. You hold my hand and you guide me. You've prepared a place for me with you in the end. That can get me through anything. Can it really? And it should. Remember Jim Holt, New York Times? I don't even know if Jim's a believer. I have no idea what he believes. Is it possible to have everything you want and still not be happy? Would that mean there must be something else you want but you don't know what it is. Is there something that your life will touch, experience, taste, receive that is a source of your well-being that is unique like nothing else in your life? Nothing else like this can do for you and in you what this can do. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, is a rather philosophical man, but very helpful and thinking about things in life. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life 
to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. So you, you cannot turn temporary things into ultimate things. You cannot turn your, your job, your house, your marriage, your children into these ultimate things that will fix you. They will never fix you. They're in need themselves. But there is something that you were ultimately created for. And it's not a what, it's a who. This thought from Jill Caratini, one of the guys in the church sent this to me this week. Happiness for Lewis, speaking of C.S. Lewis. Eric, you can go ahead and come up here. Could not ultimately be met in the material. As he found himself approaching a worldview shaped by something beyond the material, Lewis first thought he was coming to a place, an idea, and found instead that he came to a person, one with, within the material world and also beyond and behind it. When we get to the end of the psalmist in this psalm, a psalm that, like many of our lives, began in a place where we're just not happy. We're not experiencing a sense of well-being and soundness of soul. He concludes, and he gets fixed by this. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart still may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion. God, you are my portion in this life. Man. This is, this is always for me a miserable moment of commentary in the presence of God. That some of us have found God and we haven't found happiness. Some of us have gotten around God and yet it was the, the little pursuits and ideas from childhood and what somebody told us in a class or some other thought to pursue that. That'll make me happy. I just have that'll make me happy. And then we get God and we still go, that'll make me happy over there. And here the psalmist reveals you know, my flesh and my heart may fail and your job may fail and your health may fail and your family may fail and your marriage may fail and you may never get married and you may get married and divorced and married and divorced again. But God is my strength and my portion. God is my portion. What do you want to get out of this world? What do you want to get out of 2014? God, it's my portion. I want to get God out of this year. I want to get a view of God and a taste of God. I want to get around God. I want to be affected by God. I want to know God in 2014. More than anything else, I want what this guy wanted. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, for me, 
It's good to be near God. Other translations say, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Listen, Christian, I... You know how many pulpits stand up and say, hey, God's really powerful and God's really good. And if you learn how to use faith, you can get God to get you the things that you want and so that you can be happy. So is God the treasure or is, is God a bus that takes you to the treasure? When you found God, did you go, oh, finally, somebody that can help me get my goal. I've always wanted to be this. And now I found out that God, God's got power and God is good. And if I just learn how to use faith, I can get God to get me that. Because if I have that, I'll be happy. You know how many people have stepped on God like a stepping stone? Here's Jesus. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's just the the boost I needed to be able to reach where I've always wanted to reach, to create the life I've always wanted to have and the reputation and the name and the ease. Jesus, thank you for letting me step on you to get what's going to make me happy. All right, can, can we go back to my title last week? All right, can, can we rescue happy from stupid? The God of the universe comes and says, those things will never make you happy. You will get pieces of them and aspects of them and you will turn the corner on those things and you'll be just as feeling empty as you were when you started. Because that never was designed to make you happy. I was. And the only reason why... I may not jump for joy and dance out of my seat, recognizing, oh, Keith, are you serious? I already got God. <laughs> Thank you. Man, 2014, it's in the bag, baby. It's in the bag. It doesn't matter whether my business succeeds. It's not about whether or not I improve, whether my wife and I start con- conversing better. It's not about that. I've got God now. I got the source of happiness in my life now. So that even if my heart and my flesh fail in 2014, I've got God. Right? That's, that's the good news in the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. It may not be what you signed on for. But I promise you this, and I want to try and help with this in the weeks to come. If we'll gaze at God a bit, his value will increase in our eyes. Not increase, because he is invaluable. But he will become more valuable to us than anything else in our lives. I want you to go on this journey with me. Let me, let me tell you why we ended up in this series. At least I think. We've been praying about it for several months. And it's because the church is finding itself at an address not just our church, the church, that some things about living the Christian life need to be fixed. They need to be fixed. But the things that need to replace them are things that take faith, sometimes enormous, 
challenging, risky faith. And if, if something else is your source of happiness besides God, you will not take that risk. You won't spend your energy, your time, your money. You won't do it. And so if, if the church doesn't gaze on God and see God, hey, we can read all the rest of the Bible all we want. We can talk about being on a mission. We can go after things. We can talk about wanting the glory to fill the earth. We ain't going to do much with that. Because you won't risk it all until you realize I already got everything I need. If I lose it, it's okay. So we're going we're gonna to gaze on God. We're going to do that for a while. I don't even know how long. Just one message after another, gazing on God. I'm not going to start next week. I'll be at the men's retreat next week. But soon after that, we're going to gaze on God. The first thing I'm going to tell you in that message is, don't try and fix anything in your life. You got stuff that's broke, your marriage, this is that. I don't want you to fix anything. I just want you to stare. I want you to join me in a staring contest with God. We'll do that for a while. But let me close with John Piper's thought here in your outline. Because it is, it is a commentary that needs to inform some hearts soberly here this morning. John Piper is referring to his book, God is the Gospel. If you've not read that book and you've only read sparsely of John Piper, that book is, is a must read. If you want to be a Christian, you need to read God is the Gospel. He says, my point in this book is that all the saving events... And all the saving blessings of the gospel are means of getting obstacles out of the way so that we might know and enjoy God most fully. Propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven, right? Teaching the church, going into small groups, anything we do, worship before God, any of that. None of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him. Listen, how how many Christians have just simply, you're sitting here today, maybe you've come to Christ and welcomed him as a consultant and guide to bring you into a land that will make you happy. We might need even to repent of that. We have devalued God. We've made him a means to an end rather than the end. God is ultimate. He goes on and says, if we believe all these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of of getting to God, they have not happened to us. (laughs) That's sobering. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. How many of us evangelize people by telling them, well, do you want to go to heaven? Lots of people want to go to heaven. It's like free gym membership, streets of gold, nobody cries. Who doesn't want that? Well, you know, Jesus is going to be there. Well, that's cool. He can be there if he wants. There's a lot of cool stuff to do. Maybe I'll bump into him. God didn't save you to send you to heaven. 
He saved you to bring you to himself. You know, there's a huge difference. It's the same kind of mentality that makes us come to church and not encounter God. Because we like people. We like this setting. These are decent people. You know, better than the other group that we were hanging around. It's nice to be here, isn't it? You can be here every week and not get around God. Isn't that tragic? It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. God is the gospel. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for revelation, for truth, for your word. Lord, I I know it's just real, Lord, as we are here and we're starting a new year and wrestling through the emotions that live in our lives and how we feel about things. Lord, it's just a reality. We're all here trying to fix our sense of happiness, trying to fix our sense of well-being. We want a, we want a new year that's got a healthier body because we think that'll, that'll make us feel better about life and ourselves. We want to organize our lives because we think that'll make life function better and be more rewarding. Well, there's just a lot of things that we hope will fix us. But Lord, I pray that as we start this year, we would, we would find you. Lord, we would find you. Amidst all the noise, all the rubble, all the pursuits, all the busyness in our lives. We would find you. We would be reminded in our souls that you are my portion, God. You are the prize my heart seeks. Knowing you, having you hold my hand, lead me through this life and to be with you forever, with you forever in glory is a prize above every other prize. Lord, it is a prosperity that is truly prosperous, not temporarily a distraction. It is a joy that travels deep that no human being can bring, no money can bring. Nothing but you can bring. Lord, would you convince us of that? I pray for us as a church. Lord, make us guilty of being a church that celebrates, I have Jesus Christ. That's what I have. I don't know what else is supposedly great about me, but I have Jesus Christ. I have a treasure above all treasures. I have the joy of my soul. The nearness of God is my good. I get up on a daily basis. The first thing I consider is, Lord, will you be near me today? Then it'll be a good day. Be a blessed day. It'll be a prosperous day. Lord, our hearts and our flesh may fail. But God, you are our strength and you are our portion forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Amen. See you guys Friday. See you men on Friday. Looking forward to it.